Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions Podcast, which features a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts, Len Casper and Jim Deshays, the Cubs television tandem. J.D., how are you doing this week? I'm well, Len. How are you, sir? Doing just fine. Uh, actually, I said a Chicago Cubs personality, but we're going to drift a little bit away from that today to get into the weeds in terms of baseball history with our good friend Tim Kirkchen, uh, ESPN Major League Baseball analyst, columnist, correspondent. He's uh, written multiple baseball books. Uh, he's covered the sport uh, as a writer for a long time, and I, I really can't think of anyone uh, in our game who loves the sport and loves the history and loves the minutia more than Tim Kirkchen. Yeah, and, and every time you have a conversation with him, you you walk away with that that very feeling. It's it's absolutely uh, a 100% genuine love of the game, um, and, and it's on two fronts, right? He, he loves the the stats and the numbers and, and the history, the, the kind of the raw numbers, but you're right, the minutia, the quirks, uh, he's all about that as well, and that's what makes him uh, so much fun to talk to. All right, here we go. Enjoy our conversation with Tim Kirchin. Tim, uh, we start every podcast these days asking our guests how they're doing and how their families are. Everybody good? Yeah, everyone's healthy. I haven't left my office for like 10 weeks. And even though I worked really well out of my office, because this is where I work when I'm not at a park, it's been really, really weird, as it is for you guys, not to be at a ballpark. But all that matters at the moment is that everybody's healthy and let's keep it that way. What uh, do you miss the most about baseball right now? Well, there's no substitute for being at the ballpark and actually watching the games. And I'm a little afraid we've gotten away from watching the games. We think the answers and our evaluations are on some sort of spreadsheet or computer sheet or some sort of stat sheet, when the answers, at least most of them, are when you actually watch the game. That's what I miss the most. But I also miss, I must say, getting up exceptionally early in the morning and just reading the box scores, which I've been doing since I was like five years old. And to not have that morning fix of the, the box scores, which just bring you so much if you if you look at them closely enough. Uh, you know, drinking a Diet Mountain Dew and, and reading 15 box scores every morning at six o'clock, that's a pretty good start to the day for me. And I don't have that anymore. You must be uh, you must be going through a box score withdrawal. And did did you not have like a, a Ripken esque streak of cutting box scores out of the morning paper? Did like twenty some years of, of of that every single day? Is that is that accurate? Yeah, and it was way way more impressive than Ripken streak. I did twenty consecutive years as an adult. I went from 1990 to 2010. I never missed a day cutting out the box scores. I came really close once, and like quarter to midnight one night, I woke up kind of in a, in a panic, and I realized, oh, my God, I didn't do my box score book today. My wife watched all of this as I frantically ran to my office, and like a seven-year-old cut out all the box scores. And when I got back to bed, it was like she looked at me like, how? 
could I have married such an unfathomable geek that this is what he does. So I did that for 20 years and I only quit doing it because I couldn't get all the box scores in my morning paper. You know, the newspaper business was dying and I would get six or seven per day and then I would take the next day to find the rest of them. So, but it was really a comfort to me to go on a long trip, let's say, and if I needed to know something about the Padres bullpen, I could look at all those box scores in my box score book on the airplane and I felt like I was a little bit more caught up. So you made a, a box score book. So you you taped all these into a book? Yeah, and I would go through two books a year, and I would carry those books with me wherever I went. Uh, my wife and kids used to say, you know, Dad, you can get all this stuff on the Internet, which I was well aware of, but I just felt like I could see it better and I could absorb it better if I did it with my own two hands. And, and the day that I realized maybe I have to make a change is the weight of my box score books collapsed my clothes closet in my bedroom. And I came home from a trip and, and all my clothes were like on the floor, all my suits, you know, covered with plaster and all these all these box score books with all the three for four by Wade Boggs were in there. And I had to get everything replaced. You know, it's hard to find a 38 short coat on the rack, by the way. And my, and my poor brother, Matt, had to come over and rebuild my closet because it had collapsed so badly. So that was kind of the first indicator that maybe I should try something else here. So last week, J.D. told us that he still gets the morning paper delivered. Um, and and with the box score thing that you did for 20 years, at the height uh, of this, how many subscriptions did you have? How many newspapers did you get delivered to your door? Well, I was on the road so much that I would just get papers from whatever city I was in. But at the time, the only newspaper that was working from 90 to 2010, at least for me, was the Washington Post. So most of my box scores came out of there. And they were very diligent that if they missed a box score one day, I could find it the next day. Like, here are, you know, Thursday night box scores. So I, I only subscribed to one paper. But when I went on the road, I would read every paper in the town. If I went to, to Boston, I'd buy every paper and USA Today, but I didn't do that at home. So let's get into the box score thing. What what were the things other than who pitched, you know, and the bullpen stuff you mentioned, like what were the key things you took out of each box score? Well, I keep the winning and losing pitchers, which you can always uh, always get something out of. I used to, uh, most of the time, kept four strikeout games for hitters. I was always fascinated, you know, when someone got a, a, a hat trick and then one more, a sombrero, which was amazing to me. Uh, for a long time, I kept multi-homer games. I kept 10 run games for each team. And believe me, in the steroid era, you know, teams were scored 10 runs in a game like 25 times. But I also always and still do, I, I, I'm really pathetic, but I still look for what I call the reverse triple-double. That is the guy who has two strikeouts, two grounded in double plays, and two errors in the same game. So it's happened 
One time since all those stats became official, Kurt Babakwa did it in 1978. But every day, still, I check to see if somebody gets a reverse triple-double. And when I see a guy's grounded into two double plays, I start to get interested. But I've never really come close to finding anybody since Babakwa in 78. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting thing because um, I have called two very rare offensive performances, and we often hear about the cycle. Uh, but Chris Bryant against the Reds, J.D., was it 15 or 16? Three homers, yes. two doubles? Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> Matt Carpenter, I want to say 2018 at Wrigley Field, Tim, uh, replicated that. And I think there have only been two or three in Major League history. So those are the things that that make this game great, right? When you can literally walk out of the ballpark and say, this is something nobody had ever seen before. Right. I mean, and you guys did the game when Ryan Dempster pitched against Homer Bailey, and they pitched on their shared birthday, May the 3rd. 2012. I mean, seriously, that's never happened in baseball history. Two guys start against each other on their shared birthday. And in 2008, Willie Harris and Ian Kinsler, born on the same day, hit home runs on their birthday as opponents. And Ian Kinsler came up to me breathless and said, that's never happened before. And he was right. That's why baseball is so great is it just makes you slap your forehead sometimes and say, how in the world could that happen? I mean, Chris Davis and Chris Davis have homered on the same day 34 times. I mean, seriously, what are the odds of that? Prince Fielder and his dad hit exactly 319 homers. Joe Necro hit one homer in his career. It came off his brother, Phil. And this is my favorite one. So Bud Black at one point in his career was 92 and 92. And at at least at one day of his career, he he had a 500 record. And the teams for which he pitched had exactly a 500 record while he was on their team. He was the ultimate 500 pitcher. I tracked this thing for weeks. The day came, I flew from Dallas to San Francisco to tell Bud Black about this remarkable coincidence. And he looked at me and he said, you came 1,500 miles to tell me that? You got nothing else to do with your life. That's what he said. So... I've got I've got a two-parter here for you, Tim. Uh, one, I want to circle back to Bavakwa. And did you talk to him after he uh, achieved such a glorious milestone? And two, on the Buddy Black thing, when did you become aware of it? How, how do you how does this seed get planted that this is happening? I mean, you don't you just don't happen upon it. You must have been digging somewhere to find out this information. Right, the Elias Sports Bureau, which is every best friend in the world for me lives works for the Elias Sports Bureau because they they looked this up and had it in one of their Elias analysts like this is getting close this might happen at some point so I followed it I followed it I followed it until the day actually came and I 
I can honestly say, other than the birth of my children, when I found that day when he was exactly 500 and so were his teams, it was like the coolest thing ever. As for Vivacqua, he did it in 78. I was a senior in college in 78. So I never really had a chance. And I didn't even learn about it until maybe 12 years ago. So I've never had the moment to go ask him. But when I do see him, it would be really embarrassing. But that will be the first question I ask. So you went to, I saw that you wrote this last week, and uh, you're from Bethesda, Maryland. You attended Walter Johnson High School, and you wrote about, uh, as you call him, the greatest pitcher of all time. And so I guess as a starting point here, TK, would, would he be one of those people in the long history of the sport that you would love to go back and watch perform? I think he, after Babe Ruth, he would be the second person that I would want to talk to. He, Shirley Povich, the great sports writer who wrote in the 20s and wrote until he was 91 years old, told me Walter Johnson is the hardest thrower I've ever seen. And that included Bob Feller and Nolan Ryan. Believe that if you like. I'm just telling you what Shirley Povich told me. Walter Johnson won 417 games at 110 shutouts, had 38 one to nothing shutouts. So he has more one nothing shutouts than Pedro and Kurt Schilling have shutouts of any score combined. That's how great Walter Johnson was. Get this, he died on December 10th, 1946. I died, I, mean, I was born, I'm sorry, I was born on December 10th, 1956. And he grew up in Bethesda and Germantown, which is one town away from where I'm sitting right now. He is buried one town away. I worked for the school paper at Walter Johnson. It was called The Pitch. Uh, I, I did some work for the yearbook. It was called The Windup. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was really, I always felt it was something there was some destiny involved that I would make a career out of baseball. And I went to a high school named after Walter Johnson. Considering he may be the greatest of all time. Uh, he, he needs a, a new PR person, doesn't he? Because you really don't hear his name nearly enough. I mean, obviously Cy Young is the pitching name you hear more than any other because of the award. Uh, but in terms of Babe Ruth versus Walter Johnson, it's not even a fair fight. Yeah, well, uh, Walter Johnson is, I, I don't think there's a doubt he's the greatest pitcher of all time. He had a 2.17 ERA, and for 10 years in a row, and Jim Deshays has no idea what this means, he had a higher batting average than he did in ERA for 10 consecutive years. Think about that. That's how great he was. And the key was, he go look at the 1924 Senators team picture. He's like eight inches taller than anybody on the team. He was a giant man and a really hard thrower over a hundred years ago. And I, I still believe he could pitch today, given all the advantages and all the tools he could use today. So if, if you had gone to say Christy Mathewson high school, would you still hold Walter Johnson in such high regard? I would. In fact, a really smart Alec friend of mine said, you would never say that if you went to Sandy Koufax High School. But I didn't. And well, just look at the numbers. It's it's real. They're real. And and he was so good. If he had played for the, for the Yankees for half of that time, he would have won 500 games. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think he, he arguably the, the greatest of all time. What was the nickname of your high school? Well, I never quite understood. We were the Spartans, which I never quite. We we should have been, you know, we should have been the big train. There, yeah. There's a local collegiate baseball team here, which I support in every way because they play in Bethesda where I grew up. And their name is, of course, the Bethesda Big Train and everything is built around Walter Johnson. So, yeah, I never quite got a good reason for why we were the Spartans instead of the Big Train. You mentioned Koufax, and this is a question. This is one of the big things I miss about being at the ballpark is running into Tim Kirkchin and Eduardo Perez and uh, other teams, broadcasters and coaches and managers and scouts and just talking ball. And this is a question that always gets kind of a, uh, I would say sometimes an angry answer, Koufax or Kershaw. And, and when you ask that question, it depends on the age of the person you're asking in terms of how they will answer that question. Uh, how would you answer that question? The better major league pitcher, Sandy Koufax or Clayton Kershaw? Ugh, God. <laughs> See, that's the answer I Man. get. <laughs> that is the answer. I don't have to say anything else. All right. I'm going to go with Koufax. Keep in mind, he went 97 and 27 his last four years, and then he retired. He was 70 games over 500 for a four-year period, and then he retired. But I think I would put him ahead of Kershaw, who is, of course, almost as good as there's ever been. But just go look at Sandy Koufax's postseason numbers. They're a joke. And I remember asking Frank Robinson once, this is when I knew about Sandy Koufax. I said to Frank, who was the most confident hitter in the world, I said, Frank, how did you do against Marischal? He said, oh, I hit him good. I said, what about Drysdale? He said, oh, I hit him really good. I said, what about Gibson? He goes, I hit him good. I said, what about Koufax? He goes, oh, no one could hit that man. (laughs) J.D., you got to answer the question, too. Yeah, well, my, my response is the same as Tim's. It's uh, like, don't make me try to figure this out. And that's the that's the right answer. I, I think the wrong answer is is folks who are you know so convinced one way or the other, right? You hear people go, ah, it's Koufax because you know, and then others will say, no, it's Kershaw because dot dot dot. And the reality is, uh, it's really hard. Uh, you know, I I think in some ways Kershaw doesn't get his due because of some of his postseason struggles. And Sandy is so tied up in the lore and the history of the game. Um, we don't want to forget our heroes or put anybody on a pedestal next to them. Um, so without having uh, all their numbers here in front of me and all the, you know, we could get, get into the, some of the real deep esoteric numbers. Uh, you know, I would probably lean a little bit towards Koufax as well. Um, but I say that with very little conviction. I think they're just you know, both great, obviously. Tim, why is Billy Martin not in the Hall of Fame? Uh, That's a really good question. I was on one of those committees. I've been on four of them, that committee of 16 that looks at players and managers who may have been left behind in some way. And I made, I thought, a pretty compelling case 
for Billy Martin to be in the Hall of Fame. Now, all I was doing was just presenting the numbers. I wasn't taking a stance. I never say, this guy can't be in or this guy's got to be in. I just leave it up to the room. And I thought there was a really compelling case for Billy Martin. But I can't tell you what happened because everything's secret in that room. But one of the players in the room who played for Billy Martin, and I can't tell you who it was, it's not right, basically said Billy wasn't the greatest guy in the world and he did some pretty suspect things with a major league uniform on. And that's why he got almost no support from my group uh, that I was in. But I think when you look at the numbers, they really stack up and go look at when he took over a bad team or any team his first year, look how much better they got. If we start naming players, will you just kind of clear your throat at the appropriate time to let us know who? No, I can't. I promise. I'll tell you almost anything else, but I can't do that. No, you're right, though. Minnesota, Detroit, Texas, New York, Oakland, New York, New York, New York. Yeah, I mean, every team he managed immediately uh, got better. What do you, you know, look, Joe Torre, uh, obviously a Hall of Famer uh, based on his manager managerial career but if you combine the two probably would have been a hall of famer you know 15 20 years ago uh do you like the case made for a billy martin type person in our game where you can really combine all of it as opposed to as a manager or just as a player but to put all of it in one big barrel yeah contributions to baseball right i think it's really important and i i think joe tory was a really close to a, a hall of fame player and then you throw in all the championships as a manager that's a hall of famer but he only goes in as a manager tony larousse and i were talking about this the other day that felipe alou falls into this category mm. really good baseball player for a long time very underrated and an excellent manager for a long time and what he did for Latino players and for all things Latino, Tony thinks that Felipe Alou should be in the Hall of Fame based on his contributions to the game. We'll see if that gets any traction or the whole contributions to the game gets any traction because there are a lot of guys who fall in there and are not in the Hall of Fame. Who, if you were to have a, uh, you know, a podium, say, of uh, your top three currently not in the hall who deserve to be in the hall? Um, that is a great question. And I frankly think everyone who's gotten in should be in, meaning Ron Santo used to be my number one choice. How is he not in the hall of fame? And now he's in. I don't think I understand how Fred McGriff is not in the hall of fame. When you look at the numbers that he put up. And I think despite some of his other troubles, Kurt Schilling's numbers are right there with so many guys who breezed in on the first ballot or the second ballot, and he's going into his ninth year on the ballot. And I think we understand why to some degree he's been his own worst enemy, but I would say McGriff and Schilling are the top two guys on my list who should be in the Hall of Fame and who aren't. The, the Bonds and Clemens one I know is really tricky. Um, I guess I'll ask it this way. Uh, 
will both get in eventually? I mean, it may be in 30 years, it may be in two years. Do you think both will ultimately be in? Yes, I do. And this is a question, Len, that will take about two hours to answer because seriously, that's Run how- a podcast. You can I've take as it. much time as you need. I know, but that's why it's so complicated. I'm going to try to explain. They're going to get in eventually. They're not going to get in on the writer's ballot. They have run out of time. I have voted for them every year that they're on the ballot, and I'm not particularly proud of that, but- I I would feel like a hypocrite if I didn't vote for them because to me, and again, I'm not condoning anything here, but during the time they played, there was this tacit agreement going on in Major League Baseball. A whole bunch of people are doing this. Guys on the other teams are doing it. Nobody's checking. Nobody's testing. It's not considered illegal, even though it was technically. And a lot of guys took advantage of it. And I'm just not ready to punish guys who took advantage of it and did better than everyone else. So I, I really struggle with this. And I would never argue with anyone who didn't vote for those two. But when I look at the two, and one is the greatest hitter I've ever seen, the other won seven Cy Youngs, and for career value with Maddox, the greatest pitchers I've ever seen for career value, it's hard, it's hard not to vote for them. But I understand it. But I'm telling you, fellas, it is the most frustrating thing that I do now. It is the greatest honor I have voting for the Hall of Fame. And yet I never get it right anymore because there are no more right answers. All the answers are right and all of them are wrong. And it, it, it drives me crazy. I fill out my ballot and I'm, I'm still unsatisfied because I don't know if I've done it right. Well, I, I feel for you, and we don't have a vote, um, and it's easy to criticize on the outside looking in. Uh, J.D. knows my stance on it, and I will let you, uh, J.D., give your stance on it. What I worry about the most is that when you try to parse who did what and who didn't, uh, there's a decent chance, without naming any names, that someone in the last 15 years has gone in and did some of the stuff that the other guys who aren't in have been accused of doing. It's just we don't know it for sure. And I get a little nervous when you start pointing fingers at some guys and not at others. So I kind of tend to go back to when you look at this guy as a player, did he look like a Hall of Famer? And to me, Bonds and Clemens, yeah, they're, they're, they're Hall of Famers. And I, and I go back to what you said earlier, Tim. Uh, I'm fine with the Hall of Fame being big. I don't want it to be too small. <laughs> All the guys who are in, great. I worry more about the guys who I feel deserve to get in and who didn't. J.D., what do you think? Well, yeah, I, 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 as I was mentioning there, I think there's a handful of guys that are probably in that did take advantage of uh, PEDs. Um, that, to me, uh, the, the Bonds-Clemens argument that that I think I would make is that, and you know, it's, it's impossible really to, to do this in any real meaningful way, but let's just say subtract the period of years where they were accused of using uh, steroids or growth hormone. Take the player they were before that, try to project what they would have been for the rest of their career had they remained untainted. Um, to me, they're both Hall of Fame players. So that's that that makes the vote for those two guys a little easier for me than, than some of the other guys in that era who you could possibly argue that they're strictly a product of, of the PEDs, that they would not have been a Hall of Fame player. Um, I think Clemens and Bonds both were Hall of Fame players uh, and tr certainly tracking that way 
prior to any usage. Tim, what would it look like if if Clemens and Bonds had to stand in front of their fellow Hall of Famers and and give their induction speech? What what would the group reaction to that be? And do you think, as uncomfortable as it might, we might envision it, that it might actually be okay in the end? Well, I would hope that that one of the great weekends of the season in baseball, Cooperstown, which I've done. 12 inductions, I think, uh, would be ruined because people would just say, uh, I don't support this and we're not coming back. And yet I've had some veteran players, all of famers tell me if those guys get in, I'm not coming to the induction ceremony. What would concern me is, and I've been told many times, that the greatest time for a Hall of Famer is the Friday night before the induction on Sunday. And the guys in the room are only the Hall of Famers. No media and no one else from the Hall is there, just the Hall of Famers. And Johnny Bench is the master of ceremonies, and he welcomes those guys into the club. I told Barry Larkin about this, that this is going to be the greatest night of your life. And that Monday, he told me, you were right. Friday night was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And I think that Friday night would be at least pretty darn awkward if some guys got in that some people looked at and said, maybe you don't belong here. That would really hurt the Friday night, and that would make me sad from the outside. This is a great segue. J.D., you got to tell TK your Barry Larkin story. You threw it one hitter purposely in your entire career, and it was Barry Larkin. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I mean, I I threw inside pitches, kind of brushback type pitches with the notion of, you know, it's kind of on the hitter to get out of the way, but but Barry's the only guy I really <laughs> hit on purpose, and it was it was in the dome, um, and I and I don't remember anything really going on between Barry and I, or anything particular in that game, other than the fact that Lou, our good buddy Lou Pinella, was managing the Reds, and for some reason he didn't like my body language, he didn't like the way I was going about things out there, and he just started screaming at me from the dugout. I couldn't quite make out what he was saying, but I knew it was directed at me and probably close members of my family. And uh, so I stepped off the back of the mound. I kind of looked in at Lou, rubbed up the ball a little bit, and I hit Barry in the butt with, you know, one of my menacing 83-mile-an-hour fastballs, and it made me feel really good about myself. <laughs> but but that was uh, that was the, the only time that I really said, I'm going to hit a guy. And it wasn't even his fault. It was because Lou was screaming at me. That's a fun one, isn't it, Tim? The the whole uh, you hit people clearly on purpose and then never admit it. But every once in a while, guys do. Yeah, yeah. And my favorite story there, and it involves the great Ed Farmer, the late great loved Ed Farmer, still so sad he's no longer with us. But he told me the story once that Wayne Gross hit a homer off of him and took his sweet time running around the bases. And Ed was furious. But since he's an itinerant reliever at the time and Wayne Gross is an itinerant third baseman, they didn't see each other, face each other again for three years. And when they faced each other three years later, they were teammates in spring training. And Ed Farmer is throwing batting practice and Wayne Gross is at the plate. And Ed told me, I hit him right in the middle of the back with 94 miles an hour. And Wayne Gross said, what the hell was that for? 
And he said, that was for three years ago. And Wayne Gross goes, all right, okay, we're done now. That retaliation is all about in the major leagues. Stan Williams from a different era used to carry a list of names in his cap. So I asked him years later, what was that all about? He goes, well, those are the guys I got to get. And I said, why do you keep them in your cap? He said, so I don't forget any of them. And then, and then Rob Dibble told me years after that, he said Stan told him he couldn't wait to get this one guy, Retribution, and the guy retired. So Stan hit him in an old-timers game. <laughs> oh, that's so good. That's so great. I just uh, I finished Dan Epstein's great book on, the, uh, on baseball in the 1970s, and I think about a lot of the rules changes. And again, J.D., you can chime in on this too. Uh, the, the conversation about is baseball a contact sport and it clearly isn't anymore. And at one time it very much was. And if you go back and watch some YouTube slides from the American league championship series, what 76 or 77, was it Hal McRae uh, barreling over people? Um, it's a very different sport now in that regard. Uh, do you guys like the rules changes they've made at second base and then the home plate collision rule? Well, I'll start, J.D., and then we'll let the baseball player answer it. No, I don't like the rules, although I don't like that Hal McCray ran through second base. He didn't slide. He ran through the bag. He hit Willie Randolph like a corner would hit a wide receiver. It was ridiculous. And I love Hal McRae, and nobody played it harder than him, but that was his job. And I'm not suggesting for a second that we need to go back to that. However, there was a real art to making the double play and getting the hell out of the way before somebody killed you. Ozzie Smith was a magician. Ryan Sandberg was a magician around the bag because they knew they had to be that way in order to, one, make the double play, and two, not get hurt. Lloyd McClendon told me once he got hit on purpose by the Cubs, and he said, all I wanted to do was kill the second baseman or the shortstop on the double play. I couldn't wait, and miraculously, that play shows up, and he goes into second right then, and he goes, I'm going to kill Sandberg. I don't care who he is. I'm making up for this, and he had him. He had him, and then he said, Sandberg disappeared. And they got the double play. There is an art to doing this, and we have lost that skill set around the bag. Dustin Pedroia said it a few years ago when Manny Machado took him out. He said all this new rule has done is rewarded bad footwork around the bag. And he said, no, I don't like it, and I'm sorry. Neither do I. I don't want anyone to get hurt. But I think when this game is played its best, it is a contact sport, and it requires <laughs> guys running into each other once in a while. Yeah, I, I probably would agree with you, Tim. I'm not as passionate about it uh, as you are and, and some others. I mean, I don't think it does the game a great disservice uh, that they put these rules in to, to protect players. Um, but we do miss, there's some exciting plays in the middle of the diamond that we miss out on. The home plate collision, um, I don't need to see a catcher getting blown up. Um you know, that, that's that's not that big of a deal. I just think it's a very difficult uh, situation for the umpires, especially when they first implemented that rule. It seemed like there was a lot of gray area and nobody knew exactly what they could do. And base runners really didn't know 
what they could do. And you see it all the time now where guys coming into home plate and the catcher's blocking the plate. They have every right to hit them, but they don't for fear that they're going to be ruled out or called for interference. So I, I would argue that maybe those those rules should be revisited and maybe tweaked a little bit. Um, but I'm with you. I do I do miss some of the some of the acrobatics and the ballet in the middle of the diamond. Um, I've, I've had shortstops tell me that, you know, shortstops should never get hit because they see the base runner coming towards them. There's more peril for the, the second baseman, um, you know, Al McCray notwithstanding. And, and the other one, the, the follow-up, right, wasn't, didn't Nettles in that same series do the same thing then after McCray? He went in standing up and... I think he and George Brett yeah, got yeah, in a but, fight at third yeah. base, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that stuff, but I'm saying that shows the real passion what guys are going at it that hard. Uh, Pete, Pete Rose and uh, Buddy Harrelson way back in the day, they got into it. Sure, and yeah, and Albert Bell steamrolling Fernando Vina. I mean, that was totally uncalled for. There was no play to be made there, but that's how the game was played back then. How about this one, Tim? A ballpark that no longer exists that you miss the most. Obviously, Wrigley and Fenway are still around. The new Yankee Stadium is similar to the old one. But what's the one uh, ballpark that no longer stands that you miss the most? Well, I'm a little biased here because I covered a million games at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And it had such great history in that ballpark. And they just kind of dropped it into a residential neighborhood. And it was very much a blue collar ballpark for a blue collar town. And nobody, and I mean, nobody loves Camden Yards more than I do, but it's so upscale and expensive and luxurious that it doesn't have the same cozy feel that Memorial Stadium had. And even though Memorial Stadium didn't have all the little quirky nuances that these other places have, in fact, one year only 15, 11 triples were hit for an entire season at Baltimore's Memorial Stadium because it was so symmetrical all the way around. But just to see those, you know, the, the houses in the background in that in that ballpark and all the great games I saw there, that's the place I'll miss the most, but mainly because I saw a lot of history in that place. J.D., is it the Dome for you? <laughs> well, yeah, just for personal reasons. You have the Dome. Um for sure. Uh, and then as a kid, you know, the first ballpark I went to was Jerry Park in Montreal. That was the first major league game I saw was in 69 in Jerry Park. So uh, and in an odd way, Olympic Stadium, for the same reason that the fact that the Expos are no longer playing baseball. And, and at the time, playing in Olympic Stadium was dreadful. Uh, I enjoyed going back there more as a broadcaster than I did as a player. But I thought it had a, a kind of real weird warehousey feel to it. Um, so, you know, those two, just because of my, my youth. And then uh, I might throw Shea Stadium in there, too. It's, um, there was just a, a buzz and electricity at Shea Stadium that I don't think you, you quite get at City Field. Well, yeah, and Lance, yeah, go, go ahead, Tim. Yes. Tiger Stadium was unbelievable also. For the only time, I think, in my entire writing career, I got invited to run out on the field and go to early BP at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It was a raging conflict of interest. But I got to run around at Tiger Stadium where, where Ty Cobb played. And I stood under the right field bleachers there, the, the upper deck that, that juts out onto the field. And I was actually standing there where I could see that a ball that – 
I might have, well, an outfielder might have been able to catch, but it landed in the upper deck for a home run. And I realized, oh, my God, this is Tiger Stadium. And by the way, when the great Ernie Harwell, when Tiger Stadium closed, I asked Ernie Harwell, what are you going to take from Tiger Stadium as memorabilia? And we all loved Ernie. And he said, I'm going to take the urinal from the visiting clubhouse at Tiger Stadium. I said, what? What are you doing? He goes, well, it's very personal. All the greatest players in the history of the American League used it. And he said, I'm going to get it all cleaned up and make it into a planter for my wife. And he's, and that's exactly what he did. Great story. Yeah, Tiger Stadium is the, the place I grew up uh, going to games the most, and I miss it. Uh, to this day, I still believe if they had had some Fenway and Wrigley vision in Detroit, they would have found a way to slowly, maybe over a seven or eight year period, renovate Tiger Stadium and make it a museum and still play there. And it would be a destination. But a lot of people who remember the park say, no, it was a dump. It needed to go. But Tim, you often say you're weird. You're not weird. And here's my ballpark story that I think you'll appreciate. I love the Coliseum in Oakland. And here's why. It's the last one left. It's the last park that I remember as a kid. The all-purpose stadiums, are all they're all gone, right? Three Rivers, Riverfront, the Vet, the Dome, Candlestick, Jack Murphy Stadium. They're all gone. The Coliseum is the only one left. And even though it's a dump, as a lot of people say, I just like that it, when I walk into that place, it reminds me of the 70s and 80s. I couldn't agree more, Len. One of my great memories, one of my great snapshots as a kid in the 60s is watching Joe Namath fade back on the dirt at Shea Stadium and throw a touchdown pass. I mean, that was like so cool, even though he's playing on a baseball field, but he's playing football. It was great. Right, yeah, I couple, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I see. I just... I just had a vision of Emerson Boozer going off tackle. <laughs> and and I want, the, the bit of memorabilia I would take from Tiger Stadium was the sign on the clubhouse door. Uh, visitors Clubhouse, no visitors allowed. I always thought that was such a great sign. I, I would want to put that on my front door. A <laughs> couple of final questions for you, Tim. Uh, we mentioned you're from Bethesda. Uh, what did the Nationals World Series title mean to the D.C. area? Well, it was enormous because it's the first baseball championship, of course, for the city since 1924. And having grown up here and watched the Senators, who were indescribably bad for most of my childhood, and then have them leave, which brought us to tears, and then come back 34 years later, go through all that playoff agony, and then finally win the World Series. It really means a lot to the people around here. And, you know, this has been a star-crossed place when it comes to baseball, and to have a champion here, and not just that, but to win the way that they did was unbelievable. And there were just so much drama leading up to everything. And again, the older people here, and I'm old, but the really old people can remember how terrible the Senators were in the 30s and the 40s. Babe Ruth out-homered the Senators from 1926 
1932 combined. He out homered a team. And so that's the starting point for how bad they've been. And then we lost two teams, and then it came back, and then they won the World Series in dramatic fashion. That's what made it all so satisfying for the people around here. And as you look ahead to a potential season in 2020, what's the one thing you're most excited about aside from just having baseball back? Try to be a little more specific, I guess. And what's the one caveat in terms of maybe the one thing you're a little worried about watching baseball in this new landscape? Well, um, I think, again, just to complete the point, I think the Nationals deserve to have a ring ceremony in front of their whole uh, their home fans. Because I think when you win the World Series, that's the one thing you deserve more than anything else. And I'm not even sure that's going to happen with the fans in the stands. But, Len, I must tell you, I'm a little worried about a lot of other things here. I'm a little bit worried that we might play seven-inning doubleheaders and everyone's going to think, boy, this is a great idea. We should play seven innings for every game. Or we make all these dramatic changes in scheduling and, and restructuring and people and the way we play the game and people are going to say, hey, we should do it more this way. Instead of playing 162, we should only play 81 or we should play 65. I know this is ridiculous, but I'm a little bit worried if it comes back and I'm praying that it does and a few little things work, we're going to say that's a better idea than the way we've been doing it for 150 years. And I don't think that's going to be a better way. JD, I think that's a total uh, reasonable concern that whatever happens this year might set a precedent that we could regret. Yeah, and I, and I share that concern because there's been so much talk about what a great opportunity this will be to play baseball differently, to present baseball differently, to you know talk about it differently um, because it's such a funky year. Um, but I think the fans, a great number of the fans, want it to feel very normal when we return. I mean, it's going to be weird with no, nobody in the stands, but if you're watching at home or listening on the radio, you're going to want it to kind of sound and look like it has always looked. I think that's where it's going to be most comforting. Uh, I'm not saying it's, you know, don't do some of the things they're talking about doing. I'm just saying, you know, maybe pump the brakes a little bit on some of it. Yeah, and the other part, Tim, is just the routine for the players. It's going to be so bizarre and weird and different for them as it is changing fundamentally what the game looks like, I don't think is a great idea for them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I don't expect for a second that the latest proposal with all the specific rules is going to fly like no sunflower seeds and no spitting. That That's absolutely ridiculous. That's, that is not going to happen. I'm just fearful that this is going to look so unlike baseball that maybe it won't be as great as we think it's going to be but i'm still on board for this anything is better than nothing anything is better than what we have right now that needs to change and i'm just praying we can get some people out on the field and keep everybody safe well our final question for our guests we try to keep it light and the idea is that you would give us an opinion or a preference or a thought that you would generally think most people would disagree with. But I'm going to twist it a little bit this week, J.D., because I think Tim already gave us his answer. Diet Mountain Dew for breakfast? Is that right? Yeah, look, I'm a strange <laughs> man, okay? I mean, I look for 
reverse triple doubles. I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. I still haven't seen The Godfather 2 because I can't get over when he shot that cop in the throat. And Godfather 1, I'm still traumatized by that. So I, I have some real issues and some real blind spots. But Diamond Dew, to me, is coffee in the morning. It tastes great. I don't care what anyone says. I don't need it to wake up. I just love to read the box scores and drink a Diet Mountain Dew. I can't do anything else in the world. I stink at everything. Just give me this one pleasure and let me have it. I don't have any other vices. I just need to do this. So don't take it away from me. I love that. I love you being you. And uh, I won't speak for JD, but I kind of am. You're one of our favorites, Tim. You're, you're maybe the biggest baseball fan we know, and you get more joy out of not only being at the park, but just talking about the game than anyone we know. You're the, gra- you're the greatest. You know, well, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I knew I would because you guys are so playful. And maybe the final message is it's okay to have a good laugh once in a while. It's okay to smile once in a while, especially with what we do for a living. We're covering baseball. I chose the toys and games department here so I could enjoy and bring some fun to the game and some entertainment value. That's what we should all be doing here, maybe a little bit more. Tim, thanks so much for the time. Well said, my friend. Great. Okay, guys, we'll see you the next time. So many great things with Tim Kirkchin. Uh, I know you haven't probably looked at it too deeply, J.D., but are you on board with the Walter Johnson as the greatest pitcher of all time? Yeah, I, I've seen Tim make that argument in the past, and, and I, I've read his um, defense. And, um, he, yeah, he's – I mean, again, it's one of those things you could argue – you could probably put three or four different guys up there on that Mount Rushmore of the best pitchers of all time. And Walter Johnson would certainly be one of them. And whether I could make a case that he's number one over whether it's Roger Clemens or uh, you know Tom Seaver, whoever you want to throw into the mix, Pedro and Randy and on and on Greg Maddox. I, I don't know, but he's, he's on the short list for sure. Yep. Great nickname, the big train. A couple of uh, notes from the world of baseball over the past week. Uh, we lost Bob Watson an all-star as a player uh, who actually scored the one millionth run in Major League history in the mid-1970s. Uh, he went on to to be uh, a general manager and uh, worked in Major League Baseball's front office. And uh, Bob was was a very nice man. And uh, 74 years old, J.D., that's way too young. Yeah, uh, a big bear of a guy, big Solid line drive hitter. I got to know him down in Houston. Obviously spent the bulk of his career with the Astros and then worked in the front office when I was there as a player. Uh, everybody loved the bull. Always had a big smile on his face, outgoing, friendly. He did a lot uh, for the community down in Houston. Um, uh, just a remarkable career, a great baseball man and, and gone way too soon. And one of your former managers, Art Howe, uh, went into the hospital uh, due to COVID-19, but there is good news on that front. He's now home. Yeah, now home. Already, uh, you know, he's 73, so he's in that high-risk category in terms of his age, but otherwise just remarkably healthy. He's always one of the most fit guys I ever knew. So that was that was kind of startling to hear that Artie was, was in the ICU for a few days and, and really scuffling, but apparently on the mend, and um, hopefully that continues to be the case. He, his first managerial gig was with the Astros in 19, 
89 and I was on that club. So I, I saw him at the beginning of his uh, managerial career and he had a successful career as a player and a manager and later on doing some TV work down in Houston as well. And the big story, which seems to have a new twist on just about a daily basis, and I think that will continue to be the case over the coming days and weeks. Major League Baseball last week uh, presented players with the health handbook and the rules. Uh, It is rather onerous in terms of what the landscape will look like if and when we do have a season. Uh, But, J.D., I guess it it really hits home how difficult this is going to be to make sure everybody's as safe and healthy as possible. Yeah, I mean, my takeaway was uh, nobody can accuse Major League Baseball of of not doing their due diligence. I mean, it's, I believe it's a 67-page proposal and really got into the weeds. Uh, you know, we talked about it with Tim, no no spitting, no sunflower seeds, no chewless tobacco. I think some of those things are going to become guidelines and aspirations as opposed to rules. Um, but yeah, it, it's... It's it's there's a lot of ground to cover and a lot to be figured out between now and uh, opening day, as it's expected to be sometime in early July. Hopefully they get it all figured out, but it's it's going to take a lot of hard work from a lot of people. Hopefully we'll have uh, some more good news uh, next week. All right. It's time for our uh, our admission this week. Uh, the, the the Diet Mountain Dew one for, for TK is pretty good. Uh, I'll let you go first. Yeah, uh, Diet Mountain Dew. I think that they, I think they call it redneck coffee. I believe is, especially when you drink it first thing in the morning. Um, well, mine is this. You know, we're all supposed to improve ourselves during this time and figure out new things and learn new things. I learned this week, and you may already know this. And I'll ask you the question: Do you know how many little holes there are in a premium saltine cracker? Oh man. Uh, no, I will just take a guess. A premium saltine cracker. I will go with 24. 13. 13. Okay. I, I was looking at a cracker one day before I slathered it with peanut butter and I said, I wonder how many little holes there are. And, uh, and I, ca- I, it was you know, I counted like seven crackers. I went deep into the package because I wanted to make sure it was uniform and it's, it's 13 little holes. Well, uh, that's a good segue because mine this week is I hate peanut butter. But I love peanut butter cookies. What's up with really? that? That's yeah, that's I, weird. I don't mind the peanut butter as a flavoring in another item, but just as a standalone, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something. Yeah, no go for is me. It te- is it a texture thing? I think it's a texture thing. Yeah, and I like peanuts too. Yeah, but not pe- and I like butter. Where are you on? That- <laughs> where are you on pudding? Oh, I'm a pudding fan. Yeah. I like pudding. So, okay. I do like pudding. I just don't like peanut butter. Maybe that'll change when I grow up. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) Exactly. Well, special thanks to Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Obojkowicz, Max Berman, Joe Rios, Adam Sobel. And for Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. Enjoy talking some ball with Tim Kirkchen. We will talk to you next week.